a noi qui incarnazione domini Accordingly, in the year 1095 from the Lord's Incarnation, the day before the Nones of April, a great number of shooting stars was seen in Gaul by countless onlookers, which would have looked like hail had they not been shining. That's how dense they were. However, what that event especially portended we do not say with any certainty at all, particularly since it has not yet been granted to us to know the secrets of God. For the sake of public preaching, the Roman father, Urban by name, came into the Gaulish lands, and as he was an eloquent rambler, he sowed the word of God here and there. A general council was held at Piacenza. Then a short time afterwards, the aforesaid Pope arrived in Auvergne, and there he held another general synod, with many Gaulish bishops and abbots. At the synod, once matters pertaining to the faith had been dealt with, he added a sermon of this kind. Concerning the miserable things that had befallen the Christians of Jerusalem and Antioch, countless powerful and distinguished men had also flocked to the council from many regions. Magnificent men, although they wore the sword belt of lay knighthood. And so, settling in the pulpit, Urban spoke thus, People of the Franks, People who live beyond the mountains, People loved and chosen by God, as is clear from your many deeds, Set apart from all other nations by the situation of your land, Your Catholic faith, and your regard for the Holy Church. We have a special message and exhortation for you. We have heard, most beloved brothers and sisters, and you have heard what we cannot recount without deep sorrow. How much calamity how much discomfort, in dire contrition, in Jerusalem and Antioch and the other cities of the East, plagues the citizens, our Christian brothers and sisters, members in Christ, are flagellated, oppressed, and injured. Your true siblings, your companions, who were born of the same womb as you, for you are children of the same Christ and the same Church, in their homes of inheritance, either enslaved to alien masters or driven away. Among us, they beg for money. Or, Far graver is the case of those who in their own patrimonial lands 
are sold and exiled and beaten. Thusly poured out is Christian blood, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and Christian flesh, consanguineous to the flesh of Christ, has been subjected to senseless abominations and nefarious servitude. In those cities, there is everywhere sorrow, everywhere misery, everywhere lamentation. With a sigh, I say it. The churches in which in olden times divine mysteries were celebrated are, oh alas, now used as stables for the animals of these people. Wretched men have seized these holy cities. Turks, unworthy and unclean, dominate our brothers and sisters. Any Christians who still lurk there are sought out with unheard of tortures. They circumcise the Christians and pour the blood from the circumcision on the altars or in the baptismal basins. Some it pleases them to have sentenced to death horribly by perforating the navel, pulling out the vital organs, and tying them to a stake. They then beat them and compel them to walk until the viscera is extracted, and then to the ground, prostrate, they fall. Some are tied to tree trunks, and they shoot them through with arrows. Some have their bare neck stretched out, so they can test whether they can cut through it with one blow. What shall I say of the horrid ravishing of women, which speaking about is worse than keeping silent? Much of the Greek kingdom has already been cut off and subjugated, an area so large that it takes more than two months to walk through it. To whom does it fall to work to rescue that land, if not you? For to you, among all other nations, God conferred the honorable insignia of arms, an abundance of spirit, agile bodies, and the virility to humble those who resist you. May your minds be stirred to bravery by the deeds of your forefathers. By the probity and magnitude of Charlemagne and of Louis, his son, and of the other kings who destroyed pagan kingdoms. And in their lands spread out the Holy Church. You should be moved especially by the Holy Sepulchre of our Lord and Savior, which is now held by unclean peoples, and by the holy places which are treated with dishonor and irreverently befouled with their uncleanliness. O fortissimi, milites, et invitorum, O bravest knights, descendants of unconquered ancestors, do not be weaker than they, but remember their courage. Let no possessions keep you back, no uneasiness for your household. 
For the land which you inhabit is closed off everywhere by the encirclement of the sea and mountains. The numerous are confined here. No copious wealth abounds, and the soil scarcely provides enough nourishment. On this account, you gnaw at each other, fight amongst yourselves, undertake wars and mutually destroy each other in injury. May the hatred among you cease. Your quarrels fall silent. Your wars come to an end, and all your controversial dissensions stop. What are we saying, brothers? Listen and learn. You, wearing the belt of knighthood, arrogant with great pride, you tear your brothers apart, dismembering each other. This is not the knighthood of Christ. This which rends asunder the flock of the Redeemer. The Holy Church has reserved for it the aid of her own militia, but you wickedly turn it to malice. Truly, you are not holding to the way which leads to life. You, the oppressors of children, plunderers of widows. You, homiciders, sacrilegers, plunderers of the rights of others. And you who await the pay of highway robbers for the shedding of Christian blood. Just as vultures smell cadavers, so do you sense battles in far-off places and chase after them eagerly. Verily, this is the worst way for it is wholly removed from God. If, then, you wish to conserve your souls, either lay down the sword belt of such knighthood, or, as knights of Christ, advance audaciously to the defense of the Eastern Church, Run most quickly, for it is from she whom the joys of your whole salvation have come forth, who distilled into your mouths the word of divine milk, who served you the holy teachings of the Gospels. We say this, brothers and sisters, that you may restrain your homicidal hands from the murder of your kin, and for your family of the faith, oppose yourselves to the foreign nations. Under Jesus Christ, our leader, Christian steel, invincible steel, even better than the Jacobites may you fight for your Jerusalem. So that the Turks in this land, fouler than the Jebusites, are impugned and expelled.
may it be wondrous for you to die in that city for Christ, where Christ died for us. Moreover, if you should happen to die on this side of it, be sure that to have died on the way is the same, as long as Christ finds you within his army. It is horrendous, brothers and sisters, it is horrendous to raise a rapacious hand against Christians. It is less wicked to brandish your sword against Saracens. It is the only warfare that is righteous, for it is charity to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. The possessions of the enemy too will be yours, since you will make spoil of their treasures and return victorious to your own land. Or, made purple by our own blood, you will have one perennial reward. Set out on the road to the Holy Sepulchre. Take the land from that wicked people and make it your own. That land which God gave to the children of Israel, as the scripture says, is flowing with milk and honey. Jerusalem is the center of the world, a fruitful land before all others, as if it were a second paradise of delights. This land our Savior made illustrious by his birth, beautiful with his life, and sacred with his suffering. He redeemed it with his death and glorified it with his tomb. This royal city, positioned in the middle of the globe, is now held captive by her enemies and made pagan by those who do not know God. She asks and longs to be liberated and does not cease to beg you to come to her aid. She asks aid especially from you because, as I have said, God has given more of the military spirit to you than to any other nation. Take the road and you will obtain the remission of your sins and be sure of the incorruptible glory of the kingdom of heaven. When Pope Urban had said this and much more of the same sort, all who were present were moved to cry out with one accord. It is the will of God. It is the will of God. Hello, and welcome to History of the Outremer, episode 2.6. It's provocative. It gets the people going. Before we get started, I wanted to point out a quick correction that I made to our last episode. 
right in the first line, I said Urban had been fighting against the Imperial faction for 17 years. Uh, this is basically just me being bad at math. Urban became Pope in 1088, so in 1095, he would have been Pope for seven years. I have no idea why I said 17. There are a few other numerical fuck-ups scattered throughout previous episodes, and I have to apologize for that. I kind of hate numbers and dates, and when I do sort of a quality control pre-release listenings, to be honest, I don't really parse the numbers all that well. They kind of just go in one ear and out the other. I tend to focus on making sure the episode flows well, and what I'm saying makes sense, so I'm really unlikely to notice an inversion or something else like that. I think in one episode I referred to the Battle of Manzikert taking place in 1072 at one point as well, uh, confusing it with the year Dioyenis died, and there are a few other things like that. Um, I've gone back and edited the previous episode because I caught it pretty much the day of, so if you listen to it now, my error has vanished. I don't like editing out other errors, um, I prefer to just include a correction in the next episode, but if it's a date or a number like that, I'll probably just continue to edit it and then leave a comment in the show notes. Anyway, last time, we talked about the Council of Piacenza, the synod that showcased the new, rejuvenated reform papacy under Pope Urban II, and also hosted envoys from the Roman Emperor Alexios Komnenos. Alexios needed aid, fighting the nomadic invaders du jour, the Seljuk Turks of Anatolia. And so he turned to Urban. Urban was more than happy to lend a helping hand. Not only would holding one over on Alexios facilitate the Pope's wet dream of supremacy over Constantinople, but the mere fact of raising an army would strengthen Urban's standing in Latin Christendom. Even though Urban was beginning to turn the tide against the German emperor, Henry IV, and his anti-pope, Clement III, the imperial faction was still a threat. Showing everyone that a massive army of Franks was at the pope's beck and call. Well, that would not only put the fear of God, pun intended, in Henry and Clement, but could even induce local rulers to switch their allegiance to Urban. Shortly after Piacenza, Urban set to the task at hand, mustering up an army, and that's what we'll be discussing today. We'll talk about the specific question of Urban's specific aims and the wording of his message later on. But for the moment, we'll focus on the distribution model he employed. How does one get the word out to let everyone know you're looking for recruits to go kill quote-unquote pagans in the East? One of his strategies was tapping into the network Pope Gregory VII had set up, the Fidelis Beati Petri. This network, if you'll recall, was made up of secular rulers that were allied with the reform papacy. Matilde di Canossa was the rock star of the group. But there were others, and when we get to examining our soon-to-be first crusaders, we'll see how many of the men and women that signed up to participate in Urban's endeavor were linked to this organization in one way or another. Urban also had two specific men in mind to play leading roles in the endeavor, and it's almost certain that he contacted them in the months leading up to the Council of Clermont. These two fellas were both southern Frenchmen. The first was the Bishop of Le Puy in the region of Auvergne, a fellow by the name of Ademar. And the second was the Count of Toulouse, Raymond, also known as Raymond of Saint-Gilles and Raymond of Tripoli. From Urban's perspective, it seems that Ademar, as a bishop, was meant to be the spiritual leader of the expedition, and Raymond was expected to function as a more secular leader. 
though this role was, crucially, never outright confirmed by Urban. We'll be coming back to these two guys, so keep them in mind. Urban then embarked on an unprecedented tour of France, careful to avoid certain problematic areas. The area controlled by the King of France, who was actually excommunicated in 1095 for an illegal divorce, and that was still pending and a bit tricky. The area controlled by the Normans, who were just in general difficult to negotiate with, even more so after the capture of England, and the area close to the border with Germany, which was still subject to imperial meddling. The centerpiece of this 14-month tour was, of course, the Council of Clermont in November of 1095. It seems evident that there was nothing about Claremont that was really a surprise. The entire affair was perfectly staged. Even though Robert the Monk, who was at the event, claims that the crowd started chanting God wills it spontaneously, as we heard in the opening, it's almost certain that, like a filmed-before-a-live-audience multi-camera sitcom, this chant was prompted by placards, if it even happened at all. After his speech, pretty much all accounts indicate that a ritual was performed, wherein those who had agreed to participate took the cross, making some sort of vow and sewing a cross onto themselves. The first person to do so was Ademar, the Bishop of Le Puy. There was also no way this was spontaneous either, and the audience was probably full of plants who could peer pressure everyone else into following their lead. It is sometimes said that Urban didn't expect such a reaction to his preaching. He didn't think so many people would actually sign up. But Urban's actions make it pretty clear that he was dedicated to making this whole thing a success. Throughout most of both 1095 and 1096, this old man, who was about 60 and actually didn't have much time on his clock left, went from city to city, doing his damnedest to get people to sign up to his endeavor. Which was what, exactly? Can I talk to you about the Pope's war aims? Because I've been dying to talk to you about the Pope's war aims all day. So, we started this discussion last time, actually, when we talked about the role of Jerusalem and pilgrimage in this expedition, versus the role of aid to the Byzantines. Now, so as to not bury the lead, personally, I view Urban's main objective as aid to the Byzantines. He was focused on encouraging Alexios to heal the East-West Schism along lines that would be pleasing to the Reform Papacy. I feel it was participants on the First Crusade who chose to view the expedition as being more in line with pilgrimage, mutating the original scope of the endeavor away from Urban's intentions and even farther away from whatever Alexios Komnenos had envisioned. I don't think the First Crusade, as it played out, had been entirely formulated by Urban prior to 1095. And the fact that the expedition as he planned it followed a trajectory that was really in line with what Alexios would have wanted makes me doubt that he would have launched something like this if Alexios hadn't reached out to him at Piacenza. The fact that I view the pilgrimage aspect of the crusade as coming more organically out of the reaction to Urban's original expedition also means I don't really buy the idea that Alexios came up with the notion to sell it as a pilgrimage. However, I do think both Urban and Alexios were shrewd enough to roll with it and adjust their rhetoric accordingly. Once the first crusaders had decided they were on a pilgrimage, why mess with it? But remember, this is just my take, and I will be presenting other views that don't necessarily agree with it. 
For the rest of the episode, I'm going to try to lay out the facts as best I can, so you can maybe form your own take. Working out the origins of the First Crusade is like a -a Build-A-Bear workshop. You're free to customize it and just play with it. Really make it your own, you know? As I mentioned, there's a bit of a historiographical divide as to whether to emphasize the First Crusade as a Byzantine affair or as a Western affair. We talked about the Byzantine perspective last time a bit, so let's chat about why we might prefer to view the First Crusade as a natural development of Latin Christian practice. In The First Crusade and the Idea of Crusading, Jonathan Riley Smith says, quote, In the context of 11th century thought and devotion, the view which prevailed until recently, that Urban's primary aim was to help the Greeks, and that in his mind Jerusalem was secondary, in the sense that the restoration of the Eastern Church in general would lead to its liberation in the end, is untenable. It was the goal of Jerusalem that made the crusade a pilgrimage. There is no doubt that Urban preached the crusade at Claremont as a pilgrimage, and many of the measures he took brought it into line with pilgrimage practices. He extended the protection of the church to crusaders, decreeing that their property was to be inviolate until their return. This protection was associated specifically with the truce of God, the means by which the peace of God movement had prohibited all violence at certain times. But it must also have been linked to existing pilgrimage regulations, as may have been the Pope's insistence that parishioners get permission from their parish priests and young men the agreement of their wives before departure. He also introduced a vow to be taken by the participants, which was signified by the wearing of a cross, he must have come to the conclusion that some sort of vow was necessary by the time of the Council of Piacenza in March 1095, because there, as we have seen, he exhorted Westerners to take an oath to help the Greeks. Whether this was to be a full vow in the technical sense or simply a looser oath of association, binding members of the company together, is not clear. But it is certain that the vow introduced at the Council of Claremont was a wotun, a proper vow, made to God, to fight for him on a journey to Jerusalem. Only there could it be fulfilled. Although there survive no formal regulations in canon law as early as this, it is clear that by the late 11th century at least, some pilgrims had been making vows before their departure. A great German pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1064-1065 had consisted of circa 7,000 persons who had made vows which they regarded as being fulfilled on their arrival in the holy city. And in the 12th century, crusade and pilgrim vows were equated with one another and were, as far as we can tell, indistinguishable. It is therefore safe to assume that the crusade vow came into being as a consequence of the crusade being treated as a pilgrimage. And it is easy to see how the giving of pilgrim status to crusaders in this way made it possible for the Pope to control them to some extent, since pilgrims were treated in law as temporary ecclesiastics subject to church courts. End quote. Riley Smith also says it's very possible that Urban had already planned for this expedition, and that striking out the Levant was simply a third fork in a greater Mediterranean project of expansion under the auspices of the papacy. Adding to the two previous forks, namely the Norman conquest of Sicily from the Muslims and the stuff going on in Iberia. Some of you may have noticed that although we have talked at length about the Normans in Sicily, I've been kind of avoiding Spain. Well, Spain and Portugal, I guess. 
That's because la reconquista de la península ibérica, the reconquest of the Iberian peninsula, is super controversial. The long and short of it is that a bunch of Latin Christians, over the course of just a bit less than 800 years, ended up removing the Muslim powers that had entered the peninsula in the 8th century. However, if you think it's hard to work out the motivations and methods of the First Crusade, oh boy, la reconquista is on a whole nother level. A huge issue is the fact that the reconquista is an enormous part of Spanish national identity, and a lot of the recent historiography there is tied to Spain's fascist era, under the dictator Francisco Franco. Even calling it a reconquista, a reconquest, is super problematic, because that references the notion that the Christian kingdoms that made war against the Muslims to their south were the descendants of the Visigothic kingdom that had once covered the whole peninsula. Until the 19th century, in fact, it was known as la restauración, the restoration. However, there are a few issues here. First off, by the time of the last stages of the quote-unquote reconquest, huge chunks of Iberia had actually been Muslim much longer than they'd been Christian. Alright, I've busted out a calculator to back me up with the math. So, if we take the official adoption of Christianity by the Roman Empire as the state religion as the starting point for Christian Spain, that's the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, well, then now the Umayyad Caliphate's conquest of most of Iberia was complete in 718, so that's about 340 years of Christian rule. Meanwhile, the Reconquista finished in 1492. That means that in the south of Spain, which was the last bit to be Reconquistad, Muslim states had been present for about 770 years. What's more, it's not clear exactly what the people participating in the so-called Reconquista really thought they were doing. One of the stars of the story of the Reconquista is Rodrigo Díaz, better known by the Spanish version of his Arabic title, El Cid. Why did he have an Arabic title? Well, because he fought for both Christians and Muslims. In fact, during the 1080s, when the Reform Papacy was championing Christian war against the Muslim states of Iberia, El Cid was working for the Muslim armies fighting the Kingdom of Aragon. In 1095, while Urban was running around France, El Cid was kicking back in Valencia, fully willing to make alliances with both Muslims and Christians to preserve his independence. Rodrigo is just one example of an ambivalent Christian knight. The tale of the Reconquista is full of them. In the late 11th century, Iberia was home to a large number of relatively small states, some Christian and some Muslim. They all allied and fought against each other. Though the religious divide could be used as justification for this warfare, questions of faith were almost always secondary to realpolitik. Iberian warfare was, in essence, almost identical to the fractured petty warfare elsewhere in Europe. Falk the Black would have fit right in. Two events right at the end of the century, though, would change the nature of religious conflict in Iberia. One was the arrival of the Almoravids, a Moroccan dynasty that entered Iberia in 1086. The Almoravids were religious hardliners, and they slowly began to gobble up the Muslim emirates of the region known as Taifas. The Almoravids actually kind of hated the Taifa emirs, 
who they viewed as decadent and almost heretics, in part because the taifas had no issue allying with the Christians of the region. But, as you might guess, the Almoravids were not open to negotiation with the Christians. And in fact, Christian chronicles of the era have different names for Taifa Muslims and Almoravid Muslims, showing that they regarded the two groups as different. While the Taifas had been allies and rivals, the Almoravids were almost an existential threat that, in reuniting Muslim Spain, fundamentally changed the political reality of the region. And, because they were much less open to any sort of fraternization with the Christians of Iberia, they also hardened the religious barrier that existed between Muslims and Christians. So, you know in like those CW-esque teen dramas when the first season introduces an annoying school bully or pesky small-time villain? Think like Cheryl in Riverdale or uh, the blonde one in Glee? Uh, Quinn? So these antagonists often get like this redemption arc and you learn that the reason they're mean is that their mom is a psychopath or they were bullied themselves and became bullies in self-defense or whatever. And so when the next season comes around, the show has to have a villain. And so they bring in someone who's like even worse. Well, that's basically the Almoravids. The second big event that shaped the Reconquista was the First Crusade. When the First Crusade succeeds, it will have a huge impact on how Latin Christians not only view themselves, but view Muslims. In Spain, the crusading ideology will be applied to what had once just been arbitrary warfare. If anything, it's the first crusade that will lead to the idea of Reconquista, not the other way around. So it's a bit tricky to go looking for explanations of what was going on in Urban's mind by picking through the convoluted mess that was the reality of Christian-Muslim warfare in the 1080s and 1090s. This is quite a long tangent already, though I am planning a possible bonus episode of sorts about the 11th century Reconquista and El Cid at some point. So keep your ears open if that's something that's of interest to you. Going back to Urban, it is true that he was very involved in Christian warfare in Iberia, but we have to view this in the context of the times, the Reform Papacy had been involved in all sorts of invasions. The Norman invasion of southern Italy and Sicily, fought partially against Muslims but also against the Byzantines, and the Norman invasion of England, fought against other Latin Christians. In all these cases, it wasn't so much that the Pope had a plan he wanted to carry out, it was more like he was simply backing up a pre-existing conflict hoping that in a bit of a quid pro quo, guys like William the Bastard or Robert Giscard would support the reform papacy politically in return for the Pope's spiritual legitimization. There are some counterexamples of Popes taking the lead, so to speak, but whenever this happened, there tended to be much less success. For example, Pope Leo led an army against the Normans at Civitate and got captured. And when Pope Gregory tried to use a planned expedition to aid Mikhail Lucas to also fight the Normans, this expedition had also fizzled. I think there's two possible takeaways here. One is that Urban was indeed happy to focus on the whole affair, the First Crusade, as a way to get a huge favor out of Alexios. That is, he was treating Alexios like other popes had treated previous secular allies. The specifics of the endeavor were fully up to Alexios, and any innovations were either due to Alexios or the First Crusaders themselves. The second possible takeaway backs up what Riley Smith proposes in the quote I just read earlier. 
that Urban was the innovator here, that he realized that the huge flaw in previous papal-led war aims was the lack of a way for the Pope to hand out perks to those who served in his armies. And so he decided to graft holy war onto pilgrimage. Instead of relying on his own popularity to drum up support, as Leo and Gregory had done, he would let the popularity of pilgrimage do all the work. Everyone loves pilgrimage, after all. So, which one is true? I don't know. I mean, I have my own opinion, but um, to be honest, it's really shifted. It changes from day to day. And, you know, I, I warned you at the beginning of our last episode. Lots of questions and half answers. Part of the difficulty in figuring out what Urban was planning is that we don't have anything resembling a direct statement of purpose from the guy. In most narratives of the First Crusade, his speech at Claremont is used to identify what he wanted. But there's a huge problem there. Pope Urban's sermon at Claremont on the 27th of November, 1095, was not recorded. The accounts we have of it were almost certainly written down after Urban's death and after the quote-unquote success of the First Crusade. And it would be one thing if our sources aligned, but they don't. There are, traditionally, five main accounts of what Urban said at Claremont. There's the version given by the anonymous author of the Gesta Francorum, probably an Italo-Norman knight in the service of Bohemond of Tarento, who participated in the First Crusade, but was not at the council. There's also the version written by Fulcher of Chartres, a priest who was present at the council and also participated in the First Crusade. And the last three are the accounts given by the three egghead monks we talked about at the end of episode 2.3. Robert the Monk, Guibert of Nogent, and Baldric of Brugoy. Robert and Baldric were at the council, but didn't go on the First Crusade. And Guibert was neither present at the council, nor did he crusade. So we have two guys who heard about what went down at Claremont from someone else, Anonymous and Guibert, as well as three eyewitnesses, Fulcher, the crusading priest, and the monks Robert and Baldric. I actually used a combination of Robert and Baldric's accounts to form the intro today, by the way. That's not to say that I view Robert and Baldric as the most accurate in terms of how they portrayed the council. Really, um, kind of the opposite. I just think that they tell a good story, you know, spin a good yarn. That's useful, not only because I want to keep my podcast interesting, don't want it to be a fucking snooze fest, but also because it ties into a greater point I want to make about the memory of the Council of Claremont and the mutation of Urban's plans once his target audience got hold of them. We'll talk more about that later on. For now, we'll talk a bit about Anonymous and Fulcher of Chartres. We actually won't be talking too much about Guibert of Nogent. There are some interesting things to be found in his account, but for the moment, nothing makes him stand out compared to Robert and Baldrick. He's really the Ronald Weasley, the Chris Novoselic, the Holly Marie Combs. He's there, but he's no Hermione, Dave Grawl, or Alyssa Milano. Anyway, Anon is probably the easiest. He barely describes the council. I can quote the whole thing here. The Apostle of the Sea of Rome, Urban II, hastened to the lands beyond the mountains with his archbishops, bishops, abbots, and priests, and began to speak and deliver shrewd sermons, saying that if anyone would save his soul, let him humbly take the path of the Lord, and if he lacked the dinars, divine mercy would provide. 
And then the Lord Apostle also added, Brothers, much must you suffer for the name of Christ, even destitution, poverty, nakedness, persecutions, adversity, sickness, hunger, thirst, and other such evils. As the Lord said to his disciples, Greatly must you suffer for my name, and be not ashamed to speak in front of men. I shall give you the voice and the eloquence. And again, great shall be your reward. Now as these words began to spread little by little through all the fatherland of Gaul, the Franks, hearing these words, began to sew the cross without delay on their right shoulders, declaring that they would, to a man, follow in the footsteps of Christ, by whom they had been ransomed from the power of Tartarus. End quote. That's it. Anon is clearly more focused on providing an inciting incident for his experiences. He does deem Urban's role in all this as relevant, but the specifics of the venture completely escape him. He focuses a lot more on the trials and tribulations of the crusading army. We also have to recognize that for a layman, understanding a sermon of this nature would have been quite difficult. Imagine listening to a lecture about astrophysics as a non-expert. That's probably what someone who wasn't a member of the clergy would have felt like listening to a sermon. Not only was it in Latin when the average person in France spoke romance, but it would have been laden with metaphor and biblical references, some of which could have gone right over your head. Now, Anand's background is the matter of some speculation, which we won't get into now. But as Penny J. Cole in The Preaching of the Crusades to the Holy Land, 1095-1270 says, quote, If, however, the Anonymous' experience of preaching was indeed limited, then his attempt, however imperfect, to report Pope Urban's sermon, to suggest something of its emotive impact, and to relate it to the astonishing events which followed, reflects not only considerable literary courage, but also a determination to commit to the historical record the extraordinary, providential nature of the crusade at the time of its inception. End quote. Okay, good job, Anon. I will always stick up for the literary merit of the crude writing found in the Justa Francorum. Here at History of the Uchimer, we stan the anonymous author of the Justa Francorum. All right, so what about Fulcher of Chartres? Well, he was present at the Council of Claremont, and he went on the First Crusade. He was also well-positioned to give a good account. He was a priest, and so he would have had a framework to understand Urban's thinking. Fulcher seems to have got all that, but perhaps he got it a bit too well. His account of the proceedings at Claremont is detailed, but perhaps a bit too clinical. So he starts off by saying, quote, In the year 1095 from the Lord's Incarnation, with Henry reigning in Germany as so-called emperor, and with Philip as king in France, manifold evils were growing in all parts of Europe because of wavering faith. In Rome ruled Pope Urban, a man distinguished in life and character, who always strove wisely and actively to raise the status of the Holy Church above all things. He saw that the faith of Christianity was being destroyed to excess by everybody, by the clergy as well as by the laity. He saw that peace was altogether discarded by the princes of the world, who were engaged in incessant warlike contention and quarreling among themselves. He saw the wealth of the land being pillaged continuously. He saw many of the vanquished, wrongfully taken prisoner, and very cruelly thrown into foulest dungeons, either ransomed for a high price, or tortured by the triple torments of hunger, thirst, and cold, blotted out by a death hidden from the world. He saw holy places violated, monasteries and villas burned. He saw that no one was spared of any human suffering, and that things divine and human alike were held in derision. 
he heard too that the interior regions of Romania, where the Turks ruled over the Christians, had been perniciously subjected in a savage attack. Moved by long-suffering compassion and by love of God's will, he descended the mountains to Gaul, and in Auvergne, he called for a council to congregate, from all sides at a suitable time at a city called Clermont. 310 bishops and abbots, who had been advised beforehand by messengers, were present. Then, on the day set aside for it, he called them together to himself, and, in an eloquent address, carefully made the cause of the meeting known to them. In the plaintive voice of an aggrieved church, he expressed great lamentation and held a long discourse with them about the raging tempests of the world, which have been mentioned, because faith was undermined. One after another, he beseechingly exhorted them all, with renewed faith, to spur themselves in great earnestness, to overcome the devil's devices, and to try to restore the holy church, most unmercifully weakened by the wicked, to its former honorable status. End quote. So, Fulcher sets up the context. He talks about both the immorality plaguing Latin Christendom and the threat of the Turks to Romania, that is, the Byzantine Roman Empire. He mentions urban summoning bishops and abbots. No mention here of kings or nobles, which is interesting. It means Fulcher's presenting this as really an internal church event. And then, Fulcher gives what amounts to the minutes for the Council of Clermont. He actually reports two speeches that Urban made. One to set out the main names of the council, which is now known as the council that started the First Crusade, but for Urban, this was one of many councils during his stint as pope, in the fight to both gain supporters that could help him retake Rome and just generally advance the interests of the Reform Papacy. This first speech elucidates a lot more of those concerns. Other proclamations, non-Crusade related, that Urban made, mostly dealing with how immoral people were being, and that simony simony was evil, and that doing violence to members of the clergy was evil. He says, for example, quote, Let him who has seized a bishop be considered an outlaw. Let him who has seized or robbed monks, clerics, nuns, and their servants, pilgrims, or merchants be excommunicated. Let the robbers and burners of homes and their accomplices be banished from the church, be smitten with excommunication. Lovely. Interestingly, he also says Urban proclaimed the renewal of the truce of God. As we discussed in episode 2.3 and a few times since, this was a formal control of warfare. It limited feuding from Monday morning to Wednesday evening and prohibited it entirely during church festivals. Fulcher is clearly showing his understanding of how the Reformed Church worked and what sort of things they said. It's not surprising that he could write all this down as what he quotes Urban as saying is probably what all reformers were saying. Criticizing simony, for example, was to reformers what audible sponsorships are to podcasters. Speaking of, no big-time sponsors come calling yet, but if you want to throw a couple of bucks my way, I linked my PayPal on the website, historyoftheuchimer.wordpress.com. That's historyoftheuchimer, one word, dot wordpress, also one word, dot com. Okay. So after discussing a bunch of other business, Fulcher launches into his account of the crusade sermon. Quote, Although, O sons of God, you have promised more firmly than ever to keep the peace among yourselves and to preserve the rights of the church, there remains still an important work for you to do. Freshly quickened by the divine correction, you must apply the strength of your righteousness to another matter which concerns you as well as God. For your brethren who live in the East are in urgent need of your help, and you must hasten to give them the aid which has often been promised them. For as most of you have heard, 
the Turks and Arabs have attacked them and have conquered the territory of Romania as far west as the shore of the Mediterranean and the Hellespont. They have occupied more and more of the lands of those Christians and have overcome them in seven battles. They have killed and captured many and have destroyed the churches and devastated the empire. If you permit them to continue thus for a while with impunity, the faithful of God will be much more widely attacked by them. On this account I, or rather the Lord, beseech you as Christ's heralds to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. I say this to those who are present, but it is also meant for those who are absent. Moreover, Christ commands it. All who die, by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God, with which I am invested. Alright, so this is all pretty straightforward. The Turks have invaded the Roman Empire up to the Bosporus, gotta kick them out. What's interesting is that the speech as reported by Fulcher definitely meets the requirements for just war as laid out by Augustine, giving the expedition its much-needed casus belli. And Fulcher also echoes a lot of the rhetoric used in the Peace and Truce of God movements. You know, the Knights of Latin Christendom have been very, very naughty, and now's their chance to make it all up. A lot of this is boilerplate church reform shit. To quote George Strack in The Sermon of Urban II in Claremont and the Tradition of Papal Oratory, to conclude, Fulcher is reporting two speeches, one at the beginning and one at the end of the synod. He refers thus to an established tradition of opening synods with a speech about the duties of the clergy and the causae, and ending with the declaration of the decrees. In his version, the call for the Crusades has, indeed, not the form of a dramatic sermon. It is part of the regular declaration of the council's legal decisions. The Pope introduced this declaration with some quotations from the Bible, and framed the address with some rhetorical means, which allow us to define his speech as a sort of legal oratory. End quote. This is, in short, the kind of account you expect from a church insider who's reporting the affair as a standard church event. Most church events, however, don't launch crusades. As Penny J. Cole puts it, quote, Fulcher of Chartres, gives an unadorned account of what he thought were the essential topics of Urban's sermon. In seeking, however, to capture the emotional force of Urban's words and the appeal of his lofty ideals, Fulcher is unimpressive and strains the credulity of his readers with the statement that, upon hearing what Urban said, everyone was immediately inspired and promised to go on the expedition. The problem, of course, lies in the limitations imposed by the reportatio style, which Fulcher used in his account. Although the reportatio has the value of preserving for future use a sample of points which the note-taker thinks are important at the time, without further embellishment, they make uninspiring reading. In Fulcher's narrative of the Claremont preaching occasion, they fail to convey the rhetorical eloquence of the speaker, and certainly do not prepare the reader for the dramatic response that followed. End quote. Apart from bombast, there's another thing missing from Fulcher's account any direct mention of Jerusalem or pilgrimage. What's interesting, though, is that after his account of Urban's sermon, Fulcher starts talking about pilgrims sewing crosses on themselves and how a lot of people signed up to go to Jerusalem, despite the fact that he never indicates Urban said anything about pilgrimage or Jerusalem. 
He does indicate that those who die along the journey will have remission of their sins, but he doesn't directly connect this in any way with the penance that would be provided by a pilgrimage. So what gives? Okay, well, keep Fulcher's account in mind. The other three sources we've got are a bit of a blend of aspects we find in Fulcher's account and Anonymous's account, actually. Because while, like Fulcher, these monks were educated men of the church, their accounts were really just adaptations of Anonymous's Gesta Francorum. We talked about these snobs in episode 2.3. One key point to remember is that it wasn't just the phrasing of the Gesta Francorum that they disagreed with, but the lack of proper theological underpinning. Stephen Biddlecombe in Baldrick of Burgoy and the Familia Christi describes the context the monks were working in very well. A quick note that his text includes some terms in Latin, so I'll interject with a translation immediately after. That's not in the original, I'm just adding it in for clarity. Anyway, quote, Baljic writes in his prologue to the Historia Jerusalemitana, History of Jerusalem, that he had seen a book written by some unknown compiler that told the story of the First Crusade. This Libellus Rusticanus, rustic little book, conveyed the truth of what had happened, but its delivery represented such an inculta et incompta lectio, an educated and inelegant read, that even those with the simplest tastes would be put off reading it. Having been made aware through this book, which was without doubt the Gesta Francorum, of the narrative of the First Crusade, Baldrick was outraged that its theological significance, its meaning to Christians, and its potential as an exemplum, example, to others, had been made worthless because it had not been reported with the appropriate sophistication. He explains that he felt compelled to apply what talent he had to recapitulating this history going over the main points of the gesta again and adding the polish and elegance he felt it lacked. This added polish and elegance has been taken by some modern historians to simply mean improvements to the gesta's literary style. This is an understandable response given Baldrick's reputation as a poet, but Baldrick thought the gesta lacked something more significant and that this lack undervalued the memory of the First Crusade, a view he shared with others. For Baldrick, this was not just an issue of poetic language. For him, the addition of flowery phrases, the use of alliteration and assonance, and numerous classical and biblical quotations or allusions would not be sufficient to do justice to the great events that he was reporting. What Baldrick added to the gesta was not simply poetry. He dignified the memory of the First Crusade by introducing theological ideas, epic motifs, and plausible characters that his audience could understand, relate to, and be inspired by, all expressed in a language they would enjoy. As with most contemporary writers on the First Crusade, Baldrick's audience was primarily made up of well-educated ecclesiastics, scholars, and others, the literati, a very small minority who entirely dominated the written discourse of the medieval world. Baldrick was, at the time he began to compose the Historia Jerusalemitana in or before 1105, an experienced churchman, a poet who had written for and about many of the distinguished lords and ladies of the secular courts, the masters of the schools, and the bishops who ruled the episcopal palaces of the Loire Valley and beyond. He himself was written about as a noteworthy figure, one who was making enemies and being considered for high office. As both a member of the literati of northwestern France and a significant contributor to its poetic output, it is likely that he would have been very familiar both to and with his audience. End quote. 
indeed, it was Baldrick's account of the First Crusade that initially proved to be the most successful. In its day, it was often THE canonical account. Baldrick's history, as well as those of Robert the Monk and Guibert of Nogent, are the Hollywood movie version of events. And there's a reason I used the blend of Baldrick and Robert for the opening today. Because they clearly illustrate the factors that were at play in making Urban's appeal a success. Not necessarily what he said, but rather how it was received and distorted by his audience. Even if Baldrick and Robert were present at Claremont, we just can't trust their representations of Urban's sermon as accurate transcripts because they are really working in the same vein as the anonymous author. The anonymous author also focuses on the effect of Urban's speech, and even if they put pretty words in the Pope's mouth, they're really doing the same. However, we can cross-reference their accounts with especially Fulcher's account, because Fulcher is less influenced by literary aspirations. So, Fulcher made sure his description of events fit the requirements for just war and also made reference to the same sort of rhetoric developed by the Peace and Truce of God movements, which criticized the behavior of knights in an attempt to get them in line. The monks often do the same thing, uh, they just dial it up to 11. Fulcher says the Turks and the Arabs have killed and captured many, while Robert talks about forced circumcision and then pouring the blood from circumcision on altars or on in baptismal basins and shit like that. He's kind of a psycho. Um, Fulcher says the knights of Latin Christendom should cease to behave as thieves. Baldrick says they act like vultures, smelling stinking, rotting corpses in the way that they seek out the violence of battle. Fulcher focuses on the suffering in Romania. Robert says news has come from both Jerusalem and Constantinople. And Baldrick goes even farther dropping direct reference to the Byzantines entirely, and talking about the suffering in Jerusalem and Antioch. He actually focuses on all of Christianity as one happy family, all those metaphors about the Eastern Church is your mother, and these are your brothers and sisters, and all that shit. One aspect where they differ, though, is pilgrimage. The monks are much clearer in referencing both Jerusalem and pilgrimage. Robert specifically calls the expedition a pilgrimage in urban speech. Baldrick calls it a journey to Jerusalem, and Guibert says the participants should strive to cleanse the holy city and the sepulcher of pollution, and also has Urban ask his audience to think of the suffering of previous pilgrims. Basically, this is supposed to be Pilgrimage 2.0. So, who should we trust? Well, Anonymous gives us no details at all. The monks are basically working off of Anonymous's account and are more concerned with writing a pretty story than telling us the truth, Meanwhile, Fulcher is inconsistent in not providing a direct mention to Jerusalem until later in his account. But I've been holding out on you, because while we might not have an exact account of Pope Urban's sermon at Claremont, we do have some letters from him written shortly after, and maybe this can give us some more clues. In September of 1096, he wrote to his supporters in Bologna, Italy, quote, We have heard that some of you have conceived the desire to go to Jerusalem, and you should know that this is pleasing to us, and you should also know that if any among you travel, not for the desire of the goods of this world, but only for those who go for the good of their souls and the liberty of the churches, they will be relieved of the penance for all of their sins, for which they have made a full and perfect confession, by the mercy of Almighty God and the prayers of the Catholic Church, as much as by our own authority, as that of all the archbishops and bishops in Gaul, because they have exposed themselves and their property to danger, out of their love of God and their neighbor." End quote. Aha! Direct mention of Jerusalem 
And the penance of sins that Urban mentions in this letter is exactly in line with how pilgrimage works. First you confess, and then you pay penance, and then you're absolved. Consider also the idea we talked about in episode 2.4. Pilgrimage redeemed your sins because it was suffering. That sounds very similar to the reason Urban gives for redemptions of sins here. The Crusaders will have exposed themselves to great danger, and thus suffered enough to have paid off their spiritual debts. So what's going on here? Well, let's get into my theories. My impression is that this whole pilgrimage thing was more of a way to sell the adventure to the nobles. This also explains why it's not as clear in Fulcher's account. My suspicion is that Fulcher was working off notes he'd taken at the moment. At the time, Fulcher might have even felt uncomfortable with how Urban was twisting pilgrimage to fit in with these more violent aims, at least until the whole thing turned out to be a success. The monks, even if two of them were present, appear to have had less qualms about retconning their knowledge of what they'd heard years earlier to make it fit with the expedition as a whole, which was by that point considered to be a pilgrimage. It's also possible that this blend of pilgrimage and holy war was initially a bit more understated. If this was indeed Urban's innovation, it's likely he was less forceful about this aspect. Maybe that's why Fulcher didn't notice it. It was only hinted at until later on. But, like I said earlier, it's possible that Urban didn't even come up with this formulation himself. Remember the letter that I read earlier where he talks about Jerusalem is from 1096, almost a year later. And he even references the fact that people were already signing up. That means it was already a success. So maybe he was just riding the wave. As it was spread throughout France, he simply accepted this mutation of his original plans because, well, it proved to be a rousing success. That's very similar to the take that Christopher Tierman has. In God's War, he says, quote, Urban called for a penitential holy war, rather than, as many have maintained, specifically an armed pilgrimage. While no authentic account of the Claremont speech exists, the Council's Jerusalem decree and Urban's surviving letters from the period emphasized the spiritually meritorious temporal goal of the expedition, the liberation of the Eastern churches, and that of Jerusalem. The method to be employed was unequivocally military. For Urban, holy war and its associated remission of confessed sin needed no additional justification. He claimed the authority of God. The Claremont decree avoided any direct reference to pilgrimage. The Claremont ceremony of taking the cross appeared deliberately novel, independent of the rite performed by departing pilgrims. Libertas Ecclesiae, liberation of the churches, by force needed no further sanction, as the investiture wars of Gregory VII had shown at least to the radicals at the Papal Curia, of whom Urban was one. It has been argued that the oblique language of Urban's letters, using words such as labor, via, and iter, implied pilgrimage. Rather, they implied an equally meritorious penitential military alternative to pilgrimage. Overt language of pilgrimage was avoided or ignored by Urban in his own correspondence, the closest evidence for what he may have been thinking. Urban's own words explicitly and unequivocally described holy war in the style of Gregory VII. They did not refer explicitly to an armed pilgrimage, even if he were conscious of the tempting parallel. However, the sacralizing of war in all its aspects, shedding blood, killing, securing booty, and plunder, 
appeared extreme and for some, especially among the clergy, no doubt disconcerting. Other witnesses took Urban's holy war and, whether or not the Pope intended it, by analogy, interpreted it as a form of pilgrimage, a familiar and more clerically palatable model. This was facilitated by the goal of the enterprise being the supreme pilgrimage destination, Jerusalem. The association with pilgrimage diluted the radicalism of Urban's message, even if it set up an inherent conceptual contradiction by linking extreme violence with a previously pacific activity. Earlier stories of pilgrims carrying arms for defense and fighting attackers, as on the German pilgrimage of 1064-1065, simply did not embrace the idea of pilgrims whose whole purpose was to fight. The appeal of thinking of the Jerusalem expedition as a pilgrimage was obvious. The typology of journeying, penance, and remission of sins was recognizable, demonstrated by the hordes of non-combatant pilgrims who tagged along with the armed forces. End quote. Tierman's take is super interesting, because that would mean Urban was basically preaching a crusade, but like a real crusade, as a wholly new institution of the church, a century before crusades were actually invented. People didn't interpret it as a pilgrimage because they were more radical and innovative than Urban had been, but because they were less radical and wanted to ground Urban's crazy cuckoo new idea in a concept that was familiar and acceptable to them. Given how things would play out, and the fact that this style of pilgrimage would indeed become something entirely new, crusades, if this take is to be believed, this is basically a case of, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. While I do find aspects of Tierman's take appealing, I don't think it does enough to include Alexis's possible influence in all this, or the role of aid to the Byzantines. Tierman also points to Jerusalem as the main aim in all this, whereas I am still kind of convinced that Urban would have been more motivated by the possibility of having Constantinople finally accept papal primacy. Unfortunately, as we discussed last time, the truth is murky. One thing I find kind of funny is how many of these crusade historians use words like indisputable, unequivocal, clear, evident. It's not. It's really not. Um, obviously, many other historians dispute these facts, and they all have their own unique perspective of events. I've tried to present as many different angles as possible. But at the end of the day, does it even matter what Urban thought this thing was going to be? The First Crusade was viewed by those who experienced it and those living in its wake as a pilgrimage. Later writers who were writing with a more holistic view of the whole event were better able to represent not only what was important from a church reform insider's point of view, but what was important to the hordes of knights who ended up signing up, tying together the actual events of the First Crusade with a theological explanation. And you know what? After digging through all the various takes, my honest conclusion is that Anonymous had it right all along. Because whatever Pope Urban was saying at Claremont in 1095 was soon transformed. However it happened, whoever's idea it was, this project became a pilgrimage. What matters is how people reacted to it, not what the guy said. If you were to ask Anonymous what the fuck Urban meant with all his fancy words at Claremont, he'd say, No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. No, it's not. It's it gets gross. the people going. But you know, in his rustic, crude, uncouth Latin. 
next time on History of the Uchimer, the people really get going. See, in 1095, Urban wasn't the only one preaching this expedition. Not only had he entrusted other preachers to spread the word, but many others took it up upon themselves to drum up support for this armed pilgrimage. Regardless of what Urban thought he was doing, that's what the people signed up for. And before Urban had even finished his tour, an army had already set out for the Holy Land. Led by the Jim Jones of the era, Peter the Hermit, what history has dubbed the Peasants' Crusade set out in April of 1096 on what even contemporaries regarded as an ultra-violent episode of religiously-fueled carnage. Come and meet me in the south of Gaul and show me why you deserve to have it all.